You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone beside you or across from you the title of my sermon this morning, Expert Witnesses, Part 2. Expert Witnesses, Part 2. This morning we are continuing our study in the Gospel of John and our sort of cross-examination of the so-called expert witnesses that Jesus calls on to testify on his behalf. If you recall, we are now towards the latter part of John chapter 5. Jesus had just healed the paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, and as a result, he incurred the fury of these religious leaders, these Pharisees. These religious leaders come and question Jesus about his authority and his right to to do such things, to heal someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus tells them plainly, he tells them straight. He says in verse 17 of chapter 5, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, as we saw in our study, Jesus is saying something here that is absolutely radical, something that wasn't normal in the Jewish society. He was saying that God was his father, Therefore, making himself equal with God in nature, in power, and in authority. Now, as we mentioned last week, in Jewish society, in order for one's testimony or claims or even accusations to be believed, one would have to provide two or three witnesses to verify those claims and accusations. The principle was written in the law of Moses, and we looked a little bit at that last week. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, just as a reminder, says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only in the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So knowing this, Jesus then provides to the religious authorities three witnesses that would validate his claims as the Son of God. Last week, we looked at the first witness, who was John the Baptist. And now this week, we'll be looking at Christ's second expert witness, God the Father himself. Now, as we examine the Father's testimony about Jesus this morning, we'll also see, again, Jesus' motive in bringing up these expert witnesses in the first place. If you remember from our passage last week, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 34 now, he says, Not that the testimony that I have received is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, I find this so interesting. In the course of this chapter, these religious leaders accuse Jesus. They question Jesus. They, they, they doubt Jesus. John even says that they wanted to kill Jesus because of his claims as a son of God. Yet here is Jesus' motivation for this entire discourse, this entire dialogue. He desires these religious leaders to believe and be saved. Remember that point. Remember, this is John's uh, point for this entire gospel. In fact, in John chapter 20, verse 31, we should have this verse memorized now. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The entire gospel of John is one evangelistic piece of writing meant to convey the story of Jesus and win its readers. You ever see those gospel tracts that some churches and some Christians hand down in you know, parking lots or they go to your door and knock on your house or put on your windshield, right? This is exactly that. 
right? The Gospel of John was one big gospel track that the early church used back in the day, right? One giant track. And so it was written to convince its readers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to believe in him means eternal life. And so our passage not only gives more evidence of those claims, but it also shows the heart of Christ that desires even his accusers, even his persecutors, the religious leaders of his day, to come and believe in him for eternal life as well. So again, Jesus tells these religious leaders, right, the reason for why he's having this discussion, I say these things so that you may be saved. Now imagine for a moment that you were one of these religious leaders in the day, right, one of these Pharisees, right? Born into the right family, knowledgeable about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, right? You, you do your diligence to, to practice the right dietary laws, the right Sabbath laws, the right cleansing laws. You, you go to synagogue every day. You, you, you wear the right clothes. You trim the, your beard the right way. If, if that was you, right? Imagine that's you for a moment. And Jesus is saying to you, I say these things so that you may be saved. What would you think? I imagine you'd think, what do you mean? I'm already saved, right? What do you mean? I read the Bible every day. I pray every day. Sometimes I go to, 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 to synagogue every day. I do everything right, right? I'm a Pharisee. Why are you implying that I need to be saved? And Jesus would say, oh, I'm not just implying. I'm telling you, you need to be saved. In fact, what we'll see in our passage this morning is Jesus specifically calling out these religious leaders and telling them they're not saved for specific reasons, as we'll see. Now, from this, we really get a sense of what, is, what it truly means to be saved, to be a believer, to be a follower of Christ, what it truly means to have right standing before God. And it's not about the externals, the, the good works, the, the prayers, right, the, 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 the perfect church attendance, right, or even the internals, as some of these, these Pharisees thought, you know, having knowledge about Scripture and having Bible verses memorized. It's not about that. What we'll see is that all about, what we'll see that, what we'll see is that it's all about faith in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. And here's the application for us this morning as we unpack our passage. My hope, church, is that, is that we truly examine ourselves, whether or not we truly have a right relationship with God. The same way Jesus is getting these religious leaders to examine themselves as well. I want us to do the same. I want us to see where we are in our faith, in our walk with God, right? In, in our spiritual walk with God. And if we are in the right place, in the right standing with God, if we can truly say without a doubt that we are saved. Listen, my desire this morning is that if by the standards that Jesus gives us in our passage, you come to the conclusion that, oh no, maybe I'm not actually saved, that my desire is that you would repent today and believe in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. And if you're thinking, well, this sermon is not for me. I, I, I've been going to church all my life. Right? I've been reading the Bible all my life. I have all these things memorized. I went to Bible school and all these things. Well, I'm pretty sure the Pharisees felt the exact same thing. I'm sure they thought the same thing. This message is for everyone, including me. So let's jump into our passage and really hear from Christ's own words what it means to be saved. Everyone say, jump for me. Amen. In verse 36 of our passage, this is where we left off last week. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. If you recall what Jesus was talking about uh, from last week in this passage, he doesn't need any finite, any 
infallible man to testify about him, even if it it was the the greatest witness, John the Baptist, right? And the reason for that is very plain and simple. And he says it right here. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is saying that the works that the Father had tasked him to do in his earthly ministry testify, confirm his nature, his power, his authority as the Son of God. All his claims as the Son of God. And rightly so, as we've seen already in John's gospel, whether it's healing the sick, casting out demons, even turning water into wine. These are specific works that only the Messiah could do. And that's all the more highlighted by Christ's greatest work in his earthly ministry, which is dying on the cross for the sins of the world and rising from the grave. These are, these are things that only the Messiah was, set, was said that, could, that he could do alone, according to the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, his own works testify that he's from the Father. The Father sent him to accomplish specific works that only the Messiah could do. Then Jesus says in verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So now this is where Jesus explicitly calls on the Father as the expert witness for him, to take the stand for him. All this time Jesus has been talking about how he is the Son of God, he, he is equal with the Father, right? And, and now he's actually saying, well, the Father himself will testify that my claims are valid. So now what's the Father's testimony? What does, what does God say about Jesus? Well, let's jump down to verse 39 real quick. Verse 39 says, You search the Scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This, right here, in your hands, this Bible is the Father's testimony about the Son. All of it. It's the Old Testament, the the law and the prophets, all of it. That's what the scriptures that Jesus is talking about here. It's the Father's testimony about the Son. Everything that Jesus would be and do, everything that Jesus would accomplish is written here in the Old Testament. Why do you think it's called the Old Testament? From his virgin birth to him teaching the parables to, to him performing miracles, even the exact amount in which he would be betrayed, the amount of silver that he would be betrayed by, it's all listed in the Old Testament as a testimony of the father to, of his son. Listen, listen to this, right? Again, you've probably heard this before. This is one of the most famous passages in, in, in Scripture, right? Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 5. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The exact same way that Jesus was rejected, despised, and even put to death is fully outlined in the Old Testament. That is God's testimony about the Son, declaring an end from the beginning. If you remember even all the way back in the book of Genesis, after man's disobedience towards God, and and man falls, God declares in Genesis chapter 3, 15, I put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first prophecy of Christ, the first testimony that God makes about his son. So all throughout human history, God has been testifying about the works of the son. As one cheesy pastor said once, history is his story. I know, cheesy. 
So now that's the testimony of the Father. Jesus says it's all of Scripture. You can read it for yourself. Now, if you notice, we skipped some verses in between there, didn't we? And that's because in between this revelation of the Father's testimony, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees for the fact that they aren't actually saved. And he gives clear reasons why. So let's take a look at that for a moment. Remember, as we go through these reasons, the goal is to examine ourselves to see if we would fall into the same category as these religious leaders, a, a people with much religion, but no real relationship with God. And again, my hope for us this morning is that if any of us, any of us find ourselves lacking, falling short, being in the same boat as these religious leaders, that we would repent and get right with God today. So let's get back to verse 37 a moment here. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Again, the Father is Jesus' second witness. But then Jesus says, His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. This is the first thing that Jesus calls the religious leaders out on. They are deaf, blind, and lacking the word in their hearts. Why? Well, Jesus says so right, in the, right there in the next sentence, right? For you do not believe the one whom he sent. The reason why religious, these religious leaders were considered unsaved is because they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was in fact sent by God the Father, that he was the Son of God. And by the way, this was another prophecy given in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. God says, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This was a judgment, on God, on, uh, this was a judgment from God on sinful man. And that was the reason, by the way, why these people did not believe. Very simple. Sin. Sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. The reason why people are blind, deaf, and dumb to, to, or numb to the gospel of Christ is because they do not believe in Christ. And the reason why they, why they do not believe in Christ is because in our sinful nature, we suppress the truth of God. Literally, Romans 1 is talking about suppressing the truth of God in, in what we see in nature, the, the visible attributes of God displayed in nature. How much more do people suppress the truth when they look at the revealed word of God? The point is this. Someone who is an unbeliever is not an unbeliever because they don't believe they are unbelieved because in their sin nature, they refuse to believe. Now on the flip side of this, a sign of someone who is saved, someone who is in Christ, someone who is truly a believer, is someone who believes in the Son of God. Simple. Believe in the Son of God. The sign of someone lacking salvation is a lack of belief or a lack of faith in the Son of God. Then a person who is saved is saved because they believe in the Son of God. Very simple and clear, right? Paul says in Philippi, to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who should ever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Someone who is saved is someone who believes in Christ as the Son of God. That's Jesus' point back in verse 38, right? In verse 38, he, again, he says, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Who, who's this person that, 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 that Jesus is talking about here? Right? He's talking about the Father, right? And who is it that he sent? The Son. This, this, the distinction that Jesus is making is the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen, it's not enough to simply believe that Jesus was a good man. A a good moral teacher or a prophet, a great spiritual leader, even a great miracle worker. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, equal to God in nature, in power, and in authority. Everything that Jesus claimed that he was. Why is that? Why is that so necessary to our faith, to us being saved? Because it requires faith. Believing that Jesus is simply a good teacher, a moral person, a revolutionary that lived, you know, thousands of years ago, that doesn't require faith. You can just pick up a history book and read about that. But what does require faith is to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. That requires faith. There's a story in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? His disciples answer, uh, some of them say, oh, you're, you're John the Baptist, you know, risen from the dead. Some say that you're, oh, you're Elijah or, or one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them, no, 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 who do you say I am? And I love this. I love the answer. And Peter's the only one who got it at this time, right? Matthew chapter 16. It says, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen to what Jesus says here in responses. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's faith. And as Jesus said, it's only the Father's will, by the Father's word, that we can have this faith and believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift of God. And we need that faith to believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God. So now the question comes back to us, right? What exactly do you believe in? When you come here to church and you're singing these songs, you're reading your Bible, and you're sitting here in these chairs, what exactly do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe he was just a good moral teacher, someone who did amazing things back in the day? Again, a a revolutionary, uh, an influencer by today's standards? Or do you believe that Jesus was and is and forever will be the Son of God? That requires faith. To be saved, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So now let's go back to verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures, but you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus is giving credit where credit is due here to these religious leaders, right? He's he's telling them that they're doing the right thing by going to scriptures because they believe it has eternal life. That is the right thing to do. But then here's their mistake, here's their flaw. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures bear witness. Again, remember, this is a testimony of the Father about Jesus. In verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
The second reason why these religious leaders were, were unsaved was because they refused. They did not come to Christ for eternal life. Who did the religious leaders to go to for, for this, by the way? Right? That's a good question to ask. Who did they turn to instead? Well, they turned to the law, their Jewish heritage, their, their cleanliness, their temple rituals, and their purification rites, and they turned to their works. Instead of coming to Christ, the religious leaders turned to their works, and that's why they were not saved. Listen, the Bible is clear, right? Your good works cannot save you. Listen, let me say it again, right? Your good works cannot save you. Can I get an amen to that? In our, sin, in our sinfulness, even our good works, the best that we could do, as we just sang moments ago, right? The best that we could do, nailed Christ on the cross, Our righteousness is as filthy rags, according to Scripture. Paul says in Romans, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now flipping that around, right? So the works works cannot save you. Your good works, your church attendance, how much times you pray, how much times you read the word, the, the, the verses that you've memorized, none of that can save you. Now flipping that to the other side, those who are saved are those who come to the Son of God. Those who come to the Son of God. Those who depend on Him, who trust in Him, those who rely on Him for salvation. Those are the ones who are saved. The people who throw their hands up in the air and ask God for mercy, recognizing that they are sinners and there is nothing in them that could save themselves. That they need Christ to save them. Those who come to the Son of God are those who are saved. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, right, verse 28, uh, 29, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What Jesus is talking about in this passage, as he mentions this yoke, right, is the yoke, aside from, you know, being that wooden plank that, that, that uh, oxes pull when they're tilling the land, right, a yoke as well in ancient times was a set of teaching, a set of instructions and laws that the Pharisees or religious teachers taught. And so what Jesus is talking about here is that his yoke, his teaching, his way, is not as burdensome as that of the Pharisees or religious leaders. In fact, what was the yoke of the religious leaders? They said, pray like this, go to the temple like this, give this, be clean like this, follow all these rules, and that's how you will be saved. Jesus says, not so. Salvation is not by works. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest when you you take my yoke on. That's a certainty there, right? Those who come to the Son of God will be saved. It's not, it's, a, it's not a if there. It's not, okay, maybe if I've done enough good things, I'll be saved. Jesus says, if you come to him, you will be saved. Now listen, it's not just a matter of coming to Jesus as in, you know, going from one place to, to another. In the original Greek, the word for come is erkomai. Erkomai, not, not only meaning, again, not, from, not just moving from one place to another, but more literally to come into something. To come into something. And that's exactly what the Bible says happens when we are saved. We become in Christ. We are in Christ. 
Uh, Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. And again, in Romans, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in, in Christ Jesus our Lord. The language that is used throughout the rest of the New Testament when it's referring to someone who is saved is someone who is in Christ. We have all the promises of God, of, of life and forgiveness and and mercy, and grace, and love, and even reconciliation, all of that is in Christ. The point is this. We do not have salvation anywhere outside of Christ, only in Him. Only in Him are we saved. So again, the question is, right, we're bringing it back to us. Are you in Christ? Have you come to Christ for your salvation, or are you still relying on your dead works? Your good deeds, your church attendance, your prayer schedule. Are you still relying on what your efforts, what you can do, your works to save you? Again, none of that saves. None of that saves. Only coming to Christ, trusting in Him, believing in Him for salvation. That's what merits salvation. In the Old Testament, when animals would be sacrificed, these bulls would be brought to the priest and the priest would sprinkle the blood of, uh, of, of these animals onto this bull and, and, the, and the people would have to come up and put their hand upon the head of this bull and, and the imagery, the wording there is that they are to lean their entire weight on it. The imagery is that it's a metaphor of the, the, that person putting their entire life in the hands of this sacrifice putting their entire, their future, their, their righteousness before God into the hands of this sacrifice. That's exactly what we're invited to do when we're called to come to the Son of God, to put our entire trust, our, our only hope, our reliance on the only Son of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So now let's go to verse 42 of our passage. So we have to come to the Son of God. Now let's go to verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So Jesus had said, so Jesus had said to these Pharisees that they do not have God's word in them. They do not hear God's voice. They're blind to him. And now he's saying that they do not have God's love in them. Why is that? Why is that? Well, in verse 43, he explains. I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. The word receive there in the original Greek can either mean to take hold of something or to take something like an object or an item, but when it's used in relation to a person, it can mean to accept, to associate with. In some cases, it's even used to describe the act of receiving or taking one's spouse or partner in marriage. All that to say, in the context of this passage, to not receive Christ simply means that you do not love Christ. That you don't love him like a, a spouse receives uh, 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 their partner, that they love their partner. 
Someone who is not saved does not love Jesus. But someone who is saved loves the Son of God. Loves the Son of God. A true believer in Christ will love Christ and will grow deeper in love with Jesus. And Jesus said, right, even in the gospel, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's amazing that we just had a child dedication and I'm sure you know, Elder Joel and Sister Sharon love Abby so much. But at the end of the day, even parents are called to love Christ more. That's a distinction. That's a distinction that believers are to have, that we are to love Christ more than anything else in this life, anything, anyone else in this life. Someone is truly saved, loves Jesus more than, more than even family members. And again, we even read that in Scripture, right? This is the greatest commandment. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's the greatest commandment according to Christ. The end goal of all of this, of this Christian walk in this life is that day by day that we are growing in love with the Savior. And the application for us, where it comes back to us, is to really ask yourself, do you love Jesus? More than, more than your job. More than your girlfriend or your husband or your wife or your... Do you love Jesus more? Is he your greatest love in this life? He ought to be our first love and our greatest love. Because as the scripture says, we love because he first loved us. So as we read in our passage, those who are truly saved, those who believe in the Son of God, that believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not just some good moral teacher, not just some, some amazing prophet from old, but that he is, in fact, the Son of God. That we, those who are saved, come to Christ, come to the Son of God for salvation, for help, for redemption from sin, from freedom from, from sin. And finally, those who are truly saved love the Son of God. They love the Son of God. And so the invitation is clear as we even close this, this morning. If you do not meet those criteria, if you fall short of those standards that Jesus himself calls out, the invitation is to repent and believe. To place your faith, your trust in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That is the call. To put him first in everything. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, I pray that your gospel is clear this morning, God. I pray, Father God, that if, if we have fallen short, if we have been living like these Pharisees for years and years in the church, Lord, regardless of our title, regardless of our position, regardless of our spiritual habits, oh Lord, our good works, God, I pray that your, your spirit would come with fresh conviction. 
with strong conviction, O oh Lord, that those who are not saved would truly be convicted this morning and turn to you in repentance and seeking your mercy. Lord, do not let us be blind to this, O oh God. Do not let us be deaf to your word this morning. But stir our hearts, O oh God. Stir us to repentance. Bring about a godly grief, Lord God, that we might truly, truly live lives that are, lives that are changed by your gospel. And Lord, we praise you again, knowing that you are our hope, knowing that you are our security for everlasting life, that in you we have forgiveness, we have reconciliation, we have love. Lord, I pray that you'd remind us, return to us the joy of our salvation. Bring us back from wherever we've strayed, wherever our hearts have wandered, whatever it is that we have loved more than you. I pray that we would repent today, that today would be a day of life change, that today would be a day of salvation. Lord, we put our hope and trust in you. In Jesus, your mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.